0: Hello and welcome episode 125 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, it's our final review of a 2020 movie before we pick our list for the best films of the year, and that movie is Regina King's One Night in Miami. But first, how are you, Scott?
1: Doing pretty well. I'm excited to finally be getting around to the, uh, the best of uh, list next week. We have a different... Uh, I shouldn't say it's not a different format. It's the same format as last year, but we have some new people that I think are, are going to have very different perspectives on uh, and change the conversation a little bit from what we've had in the past couple of years. And that's, that's really exciting is um, you know, as a fan, as much of a fan, I am of having conversations about movies. I think that uh, what well, we were three hours and 40 minutes last year. We'll probably be like six hours this year. So we're, <laughs> with that news, we're breaking it up into two podcasts. which is probably for the best for everyone. Um, but no, I'm really excited about that. I'm, Uh, I guess by the time this published, I'll have left my current job. So I'm, I'm starting a new job very soon. I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast, but I think by the time the best of list episodes come out, I can talk about it on there, which is really exciting. It is related to the movie and entertainment space, uh, which I'm very excited about. And yeah, uh, I guess as of recording tomorrow is my last day at my current job. So crazy.
0: Yeah. Big moves. Big moves. Uh, yeah. I'm just hoping that, you know, we're splitting this podcast into two parts. I'm just hoping that each part will be less time than our entire episode was <laughs> last year, um, because I feel like there is a danger, you know, uh, with our guests. I mean, God love them too. We're, we're happy to have them on the show joining us, but uh, I think you get the four of us together and we could probably go on and on and on about just about every film that we're going to talk about, but.
1: Yeah, um, look, if Fantasy Film Fives is any indication for just two of the four members, then we'll be here for a while. That's
0: true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, brevity is not our strength, probably. But, you know, we no. will uh, we will get to uh, sound off uh, all of our thoughts, certainly, on on some of these films. Uh, and and I think with a few of the ones that, we're
1: gonna, that we'll eventually talk about, unlike last year, really. Because I don't think we... T- like, the only thing I could think of that would possibly come up last year on our Best of was Joker. I don't think we talked about Joker last year on the Best of podcast, did we? I don't even remember uh if it did i completely repressed it but this year i think we're actually going to talk about some movies on the podcast that some of us have very different opinions on so that's pretty exciting
0: yeah we didn't talk about joker absolutely not um <laughs> on the best of the year unless it came off like a sarcastic reference to something no 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 they're men of culture and taste as well so okay. uh they they did not uh, appreciate the film joker either but uh enough about that scott uh let's talk about a film that hopefully we both thought was better than joker uh today on the podcast uh we'll we're reviewing a film that we will likely be talking a lot more about over the next couple of months as we get into award season uh, and that is one night in miami the directorial debut of oscar-winning actress regina king one night in miami is an adaptation of kemp powers's stage play which brings to life four american icons Those icons are boxer Cassius Clay, played by Eli Gorey, religious leader and activist Malcolm X, played by Kingsley Benadier, NFL star Jim Brown, played by Aldous Hodge, and soul singer Sam Cooke, played by Leslie Odom Jr. The events of the film are set primarily on the evening of February 25th, 1964, when Clay defeats Sonny Liston in a title fight in Miami. Following the fight, the four friends gather in a nearby motel room and what ensues, are a series of thoughtful conversations and debates about these men's roles as prominent black Americans. Among the topics they touch on are whether Cook, as a black singer who appeals to white audiences, has a duty to create protest songs, whether Clay should convert to Islam and change his swagger-driven persona, and whether Brown will find the same sort of success in his new career as an actor as he did on the football. Scott, did you find One Night in Miami to be a fiery actor showcase that maintains interest despite its single setting? Or is King's first effort behind the camera merely a piece of Oscar bait that doesn't follow through on its potential? Yeah,
1: look, I, I think that I, I I didn't really think about the, the movie in the context of whether it's Oscar bait. I mean, I imagine it technically probably is Oscar bait. It's this, you know, actor, it is an actor showcase, right? It's absolutely an actor showcase. And it it is a important issue, right? Like, and you know, as, even if you think Hollywood virtue signals, sometimes is something we've talked about a lot in the podcast before. I mean, this is the type of conversation that's important uh, that it's being you know displayed for all to see, and that it's the type of conversation that I think Hollywood would latch onto as you know trying to give it a, or, or at least recognition for you know the actor showcase that it is and. And maybe the hot button issue that it also, I mean, it's crazy to even call it a hot button issue, but a hot button issue that it is nevertheless mm-hmm. in, in American politics today. And so, you know, in that sense, I guess it is Oscar Beatty, but is it just Oscar bait? Not for me. No, it's not just Oscar bait. It's much, much more. I really loved this movie. I thought that, you know, when I watch, when we watched kind of the other sort of actor showcase play, type, you know, play adaptation from earlier, the, or the theater adaptation from earlier this year, Modern East Black Bottom, I didn't. You know, there, I think there were some limitations. Almost like, the, like the film just wanted to, you know, the actors and the and the script is just like wanted to burst out of the setting, right? I feel like almost like the play and it, in this particular in that particular adaptation, the the play format almost held it back a little bit. Although there was still plenty to love about that film, and I loved it quite a bit. But this film, it's almost the opposite. Where like it when it really hones in in the play environment, I feel like something about it it, it just really hits on all cylinders. That I, I'm not, I haven't quite yet put my finger on why why those two things. Uh, I guess why they, why they contrast in those different ways, but it feels like when you cut out the periphery of stuff that looks a little bit less like it would on, you know, on in a play or on, on the stage, right. When you really get to the meats and bones of them, just sitting, these four men just sitting in the hotel room and talking, man, I think this film just light absolutely lights up. And, and for that hour, hour, 15 minutes where they're just in that hotel room in that one setting, I think the film is absolutely on fire. I think all four of these actors are spectacular. And I think Regina King, Although I'll be interested to see what she does when she's given a little bit more freedom to do something more with the medium of film and less in this sort of like more theatrical type environment with one setting. And not that that doesn't take a lot of skill as a director. Absolutely not. But something more traditionally film uh, medium. I'll be interested to see how that translates. But she's done a really spectacular job, I think. And I think you can see her, the you know, her imprint on this film and, you know, the director's imprint on this film. And not just, of course, how it's staged because it's staged rather simply. But how the camera follows the individuals, uh, what parts of, you know, the conversations are highlighted or emphasized and and how each actor you know sinks their teeth into these specific roles, because they are, I think, roles to really sink your teeth into. I think the casting is spectacular. I've never heard of Eli Gorey before, if I'm being honest, but Aldous Hodge is a great Jim Brown. Um, uh, Leslie Odom Jr., although I was first a little bit skeptical of him, like the first, you know, his first couple scenes going in the first half hour of the movie. I mean, again, he absolutely is on fire for you know the second, or I should say the the latter two thirds of the movie. I think he's fantastic as uh, Sam Cook, and then Kingsley Benadir is probably like the revelation of the movie. He's the person who I think uh, I I, mean, I should I, he's about as you know l- little known as as Eli Gorey was for me going in. I know he's been in a couple other things uh, more recently as well. I mean, he played Barack Obama I think in that in the Comey Rule miniseries for Showtime, but. Uh, he is an absolute revelation in this from start to finish. I think he's an amazing Malcolm X, like absolutely spectacular. And overall, I was really, I, w- I had high expectations. this one you saw several months ago and was telling me that, you know, you really were into it, um, that it wasn't a perfect film, but that you were really into it. And so I had high expectations going into it. And I think that my expectations, you know, were exceeded even even beyond that. I really, really enjoyed watching this. Uh, my only complaint, and I think it's a pretty consistent complaint from what I've seen, is that I just wish that they really trimmed down the first half hour of the movie. It wasn't, ne- like, it wasn't particularly necessary or interesting um, in my opinion. And, and really, again, the film shines once it gets to the, once it gets to the hotel room. I mean, you need some setup before that. Absolutely. I'm not saying you can com- completely cut out that first half hour, but I think if you could trim that down to 10 or 15 minutes or than half an hour, I think it would have really jumped to the point really quickly. Um, and overall, like loved this movie really good. I think it'll, it'll probably be in my top 10 list.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. As far as, uh, you know, the two play adaptations for me, this one is uh, quite a good deal better than My Rainey's Black Bottom. I I do think this is definitely the superior uh, film. And uh, yeah, I've seen it twice now, Scott. I uh, watched it last in the last fall um, as part of the Middleburg Film Fest online. Um, Enjoyed it then, you know, rewatched it for this for for this podcast because, uh, you know, it had been a little bit uh, felt about the same, uh, you know on my second watch as they did on my first watch, I don't, you know, sometimes I, I feel like, you know, my feelings can fluctuate on a rewatch. I feel like this is, uh, you know, re- basically remained at the same level on both watches, but that's a good thing because I definitely enjoy the film a lot. Um, I think it is for sure an actor's showcase. I think all of the actors, um, you know, really get their chance to show off. Maybe maybe uh, a little less so Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown, I guess, if you, if you had to point to one person who, um maybe gets a slight short end of the stick but i think they all embody their roles really really well um and you have a
1: quiet feeling yeah. about him though throughout the movie that i think is really
0: well really that's the thing he's quiet uh which i think is a contrast right like malcolm x I, and actually one of the things that i really like about what kingsley benedir does as malcolm x is that he is a lot more withdrawn uh than we've seen malcolm x portrayed before particularly, of course, famously by Denzel Washington, the Spike Lee film, but um where he was, you know, this really sort of magnanimous and um, you know, larger than life figure for most of the movie. This this feels like you're you're seeing Malcolm X as like a human being. And he's at this transitional point of his um, you know, life where he is, you know, thinking about leaving the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad. Um and you know he's 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 a lot more contemplative than we've seen him portrayed which I like, but we'll get to that in a moment. But anyway, but I don't know. I just feel like Jim Brown gets lost in the mix, maybe a little bit too, but just because of the screenplay and the script, because I think the conversations which, you know, drew me in the most were the ones going on between Malcolm and Sam Cooke about Sam Cooke's role as a musician, and then between Malcolm and Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, uh, with regard to whether he's going to, you know, join, whether he's going to convert to Islam whether he's going to sort of join Malcolm in his new endeavor, right? He's breaking off from the church, from the nation of Islam. He's, you know, forming his own thing. Um, I thought those, you know, were, were kind of the most interesting conversations. But, you know, that's by no means to say that Aldous Hodge was weak or that the character was was weak. I just think that was the nature of the script by Kent Powers, right? It's his play. He's yeah. adapting it. Second, uh, really strong job he's done writing a film this year, Soul being the other one. Um yep. Yeah, he's he's done excellent work. Very yeah, different, Regina-
1: very different scripts too. I, I got to say, it's not like they're look that thematically. Maybe there's a few things that overlap, but it's quite different yeah. material, and it's really impressive to see two quite different works from the same author in the same you know in the span of a month.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think Regina King does a good job directing this film as well. Um, I think that you know this movie is you know twenty twenty five minutes longer than Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and so for that reason, I think. It became even more necessary to sort of open things up and to try and, you know, get them out of that hotel room as much as possible. That's why the, you know, first 30 minutes is okay for me. I understand thinking it was, uh, you know, the weaker part of the movie, but I like seeing like the boxing scenes, you know, again, things opened up uh, a little bit, seeing these characters outside the context of this hotel room. and then you know, even when they're at the hotel, you know, they go out on the roof. They you yeah. know walk down to the store and stuff like that. So she's she's doing her best, I think, to you know, because because that that complaint is always going to happen, right? When you have a stage play, it happened with Ma Rainey. You know, you, you'll see it in reviews for this movie too. That it's like it's it's bound too too heavily bound to its stage roots or whatever. Like I think we uh, um, I forget who it was, but it might have been one of the filmspun guys who was saying that we need to just retire that phrase whenever we're talking about. It stage yeah. plays being adapted to film and i don't disagree um because uh yeah it's it's just i mean you can basically just take a drink every time you see it um like it's it's a drinking game at this point
1: How no you can't we wouldn't be able to finish right. the review of the podcast if you did that right, right we passed You're out
0: right. um but but yeah overall i think this is a really uh solid film it's not going to make my top 10 uh just because i think it is a little bit over long um again maybe slightly more disproportionately focused towards uh, one or two of the characters, but there's some great moments in this film, and the ending scene is my scene of the year uh, for 2020. I think it's absolutely stunning, um, and you know we'll go. We can go into it in more details. Not, not that it's a super big spoiler or anything, but like I think it is, you know, dramatically satisfying to watch when you don't know that it's coming, uh, even more so. So um, yeah. So Scott, how about the cast? And then I think the cast is you know really. Uh, what drives this film right you know as with most stage to screen adaptations play stage play to screen adaptations uh a lot of times they you know they put a lot of focus on their actors obviously we saw it with ma rainey's black bottom i think you know the strongest elements of that movie were certainly the performances by you know the three leads if you want to include coleman domingo or you know four leads if you want to say glenn turman as well but anyway um and here this movie you know it has its ensemble we've mentioned all of their names kingsley Benadire, aldous hodge eli Gorey, leslie odham jr um you know i think you've already kind of hinted at who your standouts are Would do you want to say more about maybe kingsley Benadire or anyone else in the cast
1: look honestly i think i think they're all standouts i, I really do i look i would probably point toward when i said kingsley Benadire was felt like the revelation of the movie that's just because i think he was you know a little bit better than Eli Gorey and I didn't know anything about him, right? Like those are the two people I didn't know anything about going in. All right. Kingsley Benadir, I feel like had a little bit more to work with, did a little bit more, showed a little bit more and just like really convinced me that he was Malcolm X. Like, you know what I mean? Like they got the look, you know, really, really on point. It felt like, I mean, obviously I never saw Malcolm X in person, but just going back through archival footage and whatnot and records and photos and graphs and stuff like they nailed the look nails, the feel. I, I, not that I don't think that Denzel Washington's version that that magnanimous character that you're talking about isn't believable, but you know, there's two sides to every person, right? Like, like Malcolm X, the film is supposed to be about almost like sort of the public persona uh, of that character of that of that individual, right? And and how he yeah, they're good compliments to each other. Exactly, yeah, how he led his public life, and to the compliment of that, like how he is in his like this film is all about how who Malcolm X is in his private life, and that's really believable in the way that he talks to these characters just from a script perspective, I think is really, you know, the, the narrative there, like the actual words on the page feels really believable. And most importantly, I just feel like the way, like what Kingsley of brings to that role just feels perfect for the tone of the movie. Uh, It just felt like a really, like, I guess that was the right way. Maybe that's the right way to put it for me. Like this just feels like a really tonally consistent movie uh, across the board, across these like different dynamics that you're seeing play out, you know, in this hotel room. Uh, I really liked it. Um, there's just a lot of care and a lot of love that goes into making this film, but also the performances, right? Like they're trying to be authentic and true to these real individuals. Like, yes, this is a fictional account of, you know, what was a real night in history, but it just feels very authentic and real. And uh, I think Kingsley Benadir brings a lot to that, but that's not to to short anyone else in the cast. Cause I, I really do think that all four of these people, uh, all four of these individuals are worthy of recognition. I don't think that all four of them are. I just don't think that's realistic. Um, or, and by R, I mean, are going to get it, are going to get that recognition. But I, if I had to choose one, I would choose, uh, Kingsley Benadir and I'd probably choose, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. As well. And I think that part of that is just because the, the absolute high points, um, in the film, right. It is in the conversations between, and the dynamic between these two individuals. That's where the film really lights up the most for me. And I think that the other two characters in the room complement that really well in terms of how their dynamics play into this this fight that is essentially happening between the two of them. And strangely enough, just like I guess this is going outside of the realm of the cast, but uh, maybe to jump the shark a little bit, I like I just really liked how this narrative unfolds. Strangely enough, like it's not like it gives like you don't like fully understand the dynamics of all these people at the beginning, and I really like sort of the way the narrative unfolds. Uh, over the course of the over the course of the whole, you know, again, like hour, hour, 15 minutes in the room together. And I, I and I think a big part of that is just these arguments that these people get into. And then like when each one of those individuals is cooling off, how they communicate to each other, uh, different background information. That's not like, oh, like break like fourth wall breaking. I'm going to whisper to you this little bit of information that you should have known going into this fight. No, it's like it feels natural. And, and the way that that's always delivered by this by this cast uh, again, it just really fits fits them all perfectly. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, you know, like I was saying, I think Kin- Kingsley Benadier, his performance is, uh, you know, what makes it effective is like the quiet gravitas. Again, it's a, yeah, I think it's a real contrast to the way that we've seen Malcolm X portrayed before. And so, and, and I mean, it's really impressive, honestly, that somebody can, you know, because this is certain, I mean, you know, we mentioned Denzel Washington, but he's been portrayed in, in other films as well um you know this is certainly not a novel thing to see somebody playing malcolm x on the big screen um but i feel like he brings something new that we maybe haven't seen in um screen portrayals of this person before um and so that's you know a huge credit to him yeah i think leslie adam jr is really good as well i, I do think his is the most like oscar Beatty performance i guess because he's you know he's really grabbing a hold of the scenery um you know every time he's on screen and you know that. That very well may, may be the personality of Sam Cook. Um I don't know as much about Sam Cook as a person as I do about like Muhammad Ali, for example, right? Like he kind of has the same Eli Gorey is kind of doing, you know, he's kind of chewing the scenery as well. But that's just that's Muhammad Ali, right? Like that, you know, he the the man lived to chew the scenery. Like, so that's you know, that's a realistic portrayal. Yeah, and the whole and the whole Sam Cook point thing there is like
1: not to say that he's not as famous as these other people, but like he died less than a year after this because he was killed. He was killed, although slightly different circumstances than the way Malcolm Malcolm X was killed. But, um, you know, he he just didn't have the chance to live out, you know, his life to the full extent that, you know, he, he was certainly, I mean, he was obviously very famous at the time. Right. But, uh, I'm sure he would have played an even bigger role in society if he'd lived as long as he should have. Right. Like he had plenty of years left. And he was only 30.
0: Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, I think, it but it works too, like his portrayal does, because um, you know, the thing about Sam Cooke that we, you know, or is explored over the course of the movie is that he, you know, has a lot of white fans, right? He, he appeals to white audiences. Number one, because he doesn't necessarily sing about black issues, but also because I think he has this, you know, just overwhelming charisma. Um, you know, that is sort of just flowing out of him um, and just energy about him that I think, you know, Leslie Odom Jr. is bringing to the performance. Um, even if, you know, you could see the strings a little bit of him acting, capital A, uh, in a couple moments. Um, I still think he's really good. And obviously, you know, he gets to show off his voice too, which is incredible um, in a couple of scenes. It takes a lot to tackle some of these songs, um, you know, some of these iconic songs of Sam Cooke. Um, but, you know, the chain gang uh, sequence is really good when he's like in the uh, v- music venue and, you know. In the, Boston, apparently. Yeah, yeah, it's singing acapella, the song, and, uh, you know, the crowd starts stomping along. There's, there, you know, this is kind of a side point, but there's been so many great music moments in movies this year. I think, I think when we uh, get to our scenes of the year, whenever we end up doing that, Scott, I'm not going to be surprised if, like, three fourths of them for me and are are like music moments because you think about this movie you think about lovers rock um think about there's you know there's a scene in promising young woman which is a movie that i don't really like that much but there's a music scene in it there's a scene involving music that i think is a high point of the film um there's a few others that just aren't coming to me uh right at the moment but um i was i was thinking about it the other day that great. Music, music moments sure the opening sequence of yeah. ten, that's not exactly what i mean no, i know i know that's not what mean, why but, i chuckled a little bit but, no, right. but yeah <laughs> you're right you're right yeah one of the one of the best scores of the year there for sure but anyway um maybe
1: the travis scott song on the highway chase scene didn't uh didn't make the list
0: gosh yeah that is true that was it's a thing good song but i don't know why they like uh,
1: recut like travis scott's like voice in the background of the song or not
0: yeah well that's just the nolan way i guess um
1: i think it's a but, i think it's a a Ludwig thing more than
0: an older. Yeah, yeah, one. That, that is probably more likely. Um, but I think, you know, Leslie Odom Jr. getting to show off his singing voice, I think, is where he really comes alive in this performance. But he definitely, you know, goes toe-to-toe with Kingsley Benedier in those uh, sort of showdowns between the two of them. But yeah, Aldous Hodge, I mentioned. I You know, I, I don't know that, uh, again, I think his character, it gets the short end of the stick of, of anyone here, but he's a really good actor. And it's nice to see him having this sort of, Phase in his career where he's, you know, obviously he had clemency last year, which I never saw, but which apparently he was really strong in. Uh, the Invisible Man earlier. 2018 year?
1: Wasn't that 2018?
0: I think clemency was 2019, was it not? Um, the Invisible Man earlier in yeah, 2020, and then One Night in Miami. Um, now he's, it's weird too because I, you know, I watched this show that he was on back in the day, Leverage on TNT. That was sort of where he like broke through, but that was like, over a decade ago probably that that show was on. And then he just like, I mean, he, maybe he was, I'm sure he was doing stuff, but he just like, for me, he just like went away. Um, and then all of a sudden now in like the last couple of years, he started popping up and stuff. And I'm like, wow, this see, is on Friday Night Live. see this guy. He was in like two episodes. That's right. He played voodoo, voodoo Tatum. Yes. Um, yeah. He was in just like a couple episodes of that. That's true. But that was, I mean, that's even further back than leverage was right. Like,
1: Yeah. Well, so so I think the thing the thing with Aldis Hodge uh, because the only reason I say this because I was watching a uh, an interview with him and a bunch of other black actors in Hollywood that Variety was doing, and he openly talked about how he he like reached a point in his career, like probably sometime after Leverage, I think it was like around Leverage, or maybe it might have even been before that. Honestly, like back in like the late two thousands, where he made a conscious decision. To stop taking roles in Hollywood that were uh, like they just portrayed black men in a light that felt regressive. And so like very stereotypical roles, things like that. He just you re- just refused to take those roles. And so he probably in some to some extent, like he's probably hampering his career doing that. Um, but a, a worthy cause maybe to not become that actor, right? That that black actor. Um, who did those type of roles. And so that's probably why he's had fewer and further between. But I think what makes him such a revelation in things like clemency, I mean, I never saw clemency, but hidden figures he was in, clemency, um, you know, this, I mean, this film One Night in Miami, he was in The Invisible Man earlier this year, although that wasn't as significant as a role, but um, yeah, 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 right. Sorry. Uh, He he just, he just picks his roles very carefully. I think he's very conscious of that and, you know, the image that he is putting off when he's a black man in a film. And I think that's, uh, that's admirable and I think it makes these roles even more powerful when he does choose them.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting to think about that as well, too, when you think about the conversations that are going on in this movie and, um, maybe that's why he felt drawn to Jim Brown specifically of these four characters, right? Because Jim Brown is becoming an actor. There's conversations about him, like, uh, you know, being, he's going to be the black action hero, but also he's going to die in the films and everything, which is what, you know, the black action heroes are expected to do. So, um, That's that's interesting to hear that, that, you know, maybe this was a more personal project for him uh, than maybe even some of the other actors. And then, you know, the last person, Eli Gorey, I think he's great. Um, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned it, Scott, but, you know, he hasn't really been in anything. So for him to come into a movie uh, like this against, you know, two two established actors and Leslie Odom and Aldous Hodge and then a guy uh, in Kingsley Bennett here who's really getting like the juiciest role here. Um, and you know, to absolutely not only hold his own, but really, you know, go go toe-to-toe with all of them. Um and playing one of the most like larger than life people who has ever lived, probably in Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay. And, you know, again, like Malcolm X, somebody who's been portrayed on screen time and time again, even played himself in a film. Um yeah. so I, you know, I I think uh and the the fact that he's able to, you know, I think really capture um the bravado of this character but also the thoughtful side of this character too right because he's kind of, this movie you know his arc in this movie is kind of about him deciding is that does he want to keep continue being you know the continuing to be the float like a butterfly sting like a bee guy or is he want to you know be, become a different person you know does he want to convert to um islam and kind of mellow out a little bit i guess for lack of a better phrase um and you know grow up i guess again for for lack of a better phrase um and so i think he plays both sides of that character really nicely and it's again it's a portrayal of a someone we've seen a lot of times on screen that feels you know pretty new so i think that's impressive for him it is like i mean i i don't want to say it's his film debut but his major debut in a, in a role
1: um yeah i mean the only thing i was he, looking at his filmography the only thing that i've seen that he's done that of any but anything that I recognize is that he, in terms of like a, a lead or a recurring role, he was, he's like in Riverdale in a recurring role. Like that's,
0: that's about it. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Well, I haven't watched the show in quite a while. So quite a while. So. He's mad dog in Riverdale. The only uh, mad dog I know is uh, Chris Russo, that guy who yells on the, on sports radio, like for four hours every day on XM. But um the Alex Jones yeah. sports. It, it, there's also a, a alcohol named Matt, a liquor named mad Dog, I think. Um, Sounds right. Maybe I'm making that up.
1: Um, Sounds like some like I'm yeah, so loco or something
0: like that. <laughs> so that's the cast, um, Scott, of of this film. Um, again, they're they're you know sort of at the centerpiece, um, but you know also at the centerpiece. You know the other big thing in these types of stage to screen ad- adaptations is the script. Um, what did you think about some of the conversations that? Um, these guys have maybe focusing in to start with you know what goes on between malcolm x and sam cook and that conversation about um you know the the obligation or duty of a prominent black artist um who has white audiences to you know speak about black issues to use their art um as a vehicle for change um did you think that conversation was you know timely was it well handled uh you know did you appreciate that theme yeah
1: i thought that conversation was such an interesting one and kind of like a lot of things that i think we talk about that you know really sticks with you over time is something that like the conversation itself feels like really timeless like this conversation could be happening today right like this you could have like showed me this film and said this like these two people were like two current you know african-american artists or whatever or, or prominent figures. And I, and I believe you, right? Like, it just feels like this conversation is probably constantly happening, you know, behind closed doors between two people, but like what the responsibility is, right? And I don't have an answer for that question, obviously. It's not even my place to answer the question to begin with. But I think that it's such a, it, it is a really relevant conversation, right? Like, you know, like who, like what your responsibility is and, and what other people think your responsibility is is so important, I think, to, to public image, to how you connect yourself, to how you live your life. Right, and when you have the stage at the time, like these four men had, and Sam Cooke had in particular in the music industry, maybe not being the most famous person of the four of them, but in some ways maybe having the most power of the four of them with his own record label, et cetera. And that's what the conversation is about, right? The conversation is about how he's how he's wielding that label and that power to empower his fellow black artists. And I think the the, tete, the you know the tête-à-tête that they go through in this conversation around. You know why aren't you doing this thing? Well, here's what I am doing, and here's why I, you know, uh, you know, I'm doing these X, Y, C things. Like I'm making smart business decisions, business decisions to take care of, you know, black to to take care of my black artists. And maybe that doesn't mean that we're getting, you know, music to the most ears or whatever. But we're we're making decisions here. Like the the example they give is the song that he sells to the Rolling Stones or whatever, um, that one of his artists had written and performed, and had done average at best in the charts and then the Rolling Stones get a hold of it. and It's a number one and the, how they are making money off of that. And what he's been able to oddly, I guess appropriate for the Ma Rainey's black bottom conversation is that that's what actually, I was going to say, which is also, yeah, you
0: know, you know, she's idea. signing away
1: her masters, right? Like I, I think she's signing away her. I don't remember exactly, but she's signing away the either temporary rights or the masters of the music she just made. I think in that movie and Sam cooks over here saying, you know, one of the ways that I've, I have asserted my dominance and I have secured my, you know, independence or autonomy in this business is that I own all my masters um, and doing similar things basically for, uh, for his artists. And I think that's a really interesting uh, conversation since we are already referencing Marini's Blockbottom Bottom earlier, but then coming back again and talking about how, you know, Bob Dylan has, you know, this song that I'm forgetting, blowing in the wind is that the song? In the wind, yeah. yeah. That has the social commentary that, you know, Speaks perfectly to the black experience, although I don't think Bob Dylan's writing it about the black experience, um, but it speaks perfectly to the black experience um, in America in the 1960s and, you know, before that, honestly, too, obviously. Um, And asking Sam Cooke, you know, why haven't you made the song? If there's no audience for this song, why is Bob Dylan at number one uh, in the charts with this song? And, you know, being kind of stymied by that point, right, like not having an answer to that and. Uh, the frustration and the rage that sort of boils over in that. I, I just, I loved that conversation. I thought it was uh, interesting. I don't know if there's, a, the truth is like, I don't know that there is a right answer to that conversation. I think it's an individual's, you know, right to choose whether they want to, uh, you know, live that type of, you know, life where they are trying to, you know, build up their, the community that they identify with the most. I'm sure certain, uh, certain plenty of people have plenty of opinions on that. Uh, I, I'm absolutely sure of that, but Uh, I just found the conversation fascinating Um, and, you know, it was probably the most interesting and definitely the most fiery of the conversations that are had, but it's, uh, it it sort of fit right in with all the other discussions that the individual, you know, these four men were having.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. I was going to say the same thing that I think what's interesting about the conversation is that there, you know, there's. No right answer, I don't think the movie tries to tell you that there's a right answer to, you know, the question, even though Sam Cooke does start to see Malcolm's side of things, you know, obviously at the end of the movie with, um, you know, choosing to sing A Change Is Gonna Come, um, which is, you know, obviously the most sort of um, relevant song to the black experience that he had ever created. Um, and so that, that you know, he there's something there in the fact that obviously he's listened to Malcolm in this conversation, but yeah, you know, you know, it's not like Sam cook is making a a weak point or anything, right. The fact that he's been able to achieve that level of success and, you know, be a businessman and have his record label and all this stuff while also being black is in and of itself an inspiration to black people, you know, uh, from his perspective, he doesn't then need to go out and write all of his music about um, that experience as well. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely a timely conversation, right? Because, you know, as much as ever the, um, you know, we've, we've dealt with a lot of uh, issues of race and racial justice and stuff in the last year, um, just like what the characters are dealing with in this movie. And I think, um, the, the question certainly, uh, rises again, uh, as to whether, you know, black artists, um, I guess, particularly in the, the music world, though, I guess, you know, what um, you're talking about with Aldous Hodge is kind of shows how maybe it can play out in uh, the world of film and TV as well. Um, you know, whether they they have an obligation to speak out about this, because this isn't just like a merely merely politics anymore. Right. Like, you know, there's the whole thing. Of course, I'm I'm the one who's going to bring this up. But like Taylor Swift, you know, people got onto her because she would never talk about politics for a long time. Um but this isn't quite the same thing, right? Because we're talking about like people's lives are being lost uh, just because of the, you know, color of their skin. This isn't, you know, that Taylor Swift won't come out and say how she feels about the equality act or something like that. Um, Which I don't, I don't know why we need to hear her perspective on that, but you know what? I'm just happy that she's doing what she feels is right now. But, um, but yeah, but this is, it's, it's a different situation. And I'm glad that the movie doesn't shy away from that conversation um and in clearly you know sort of without doing so in like a you know cringeworthy or wink winky way you know connecting it to modern times as well so i think
1: um i don't think you need to do any wink winking to connect it to modern times
0: yeah but that doesn't stop directors sometimes right (laughs) it certainly doesn't um that's very true But yeah um but scott you know and, and then another conversation i thought that was pretty interesting was you know between malcolm and Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, um, there's, you know, sort of a conversation that goes on about Cassius, you know, possibly joining up with, uh, you know, converting to Islam. And then, you know, there's some tension that arises because, uh, you know, it's discovered that Malcolm X is think is, you know, think about breaking away from the nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, starting his own sort of sect. And, um, you know, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay is is doubting, you know, sort of M- Malcolm's intentions, right? What does he actually want uh, Muhammad Ali to convert so that he will be spiritually fulfilled? Or does he want him to convert so that his new, you know, sect, whatever you want to call it, will, uh, will get publicity and that, you know, he will have a platform to speak on, which I think is an interesting conversation as well. Any, did you have any thoughts on that, Scott? Yeah.
1: Yeah uh denomination is the word that i would go for with all the thirty thousand denominations of christianity that there are but yeah look i think that it's an it's an interesting one right and it's one that you just sort of like see coming from a mile away like as soon as the movie opens and you realize that okay this sort of like the whole the whole setup of this is that mal you know that well i shouldn't, I shouldn't say uh muhammad ali because i guess he is still cassius clay at the time but cassius clay is about to convert uh to to islam but then there's also this notion of like, well, he's about to leave. So is he really just going to leave Cassius Clay and, you know, in the lurch in in a way and and leave him with the Nation of Islam, his like main mentor that converted him, uh, and, you know, and, and carried him sort of into the Nation of Islam? Or is he going to say, you know what, I, I want you to do X, Y, Z thing, but also just like come with me. Right. And it feels a little dirty. Do I believe the intentions one way or another? I think that it can be both at the same time, right? Like you can, he can want this for, for Cassius clay for him to be spiritually fulfilled. And he would also appreciate it (laughs) if he would come with his new sect and and make it more, uh, his new denomination to make it more popular. I think both things can be true. It doesn't have to be one or the other, but like, obviously it doesn't look or sound very good in the moment when it's, when it's sort of put on display, even if I don't necessarily think any ill intentions are meant by it. It, it, It's an interesting thing. And I think you can see that type of situation play out you know, day in and day out in different people's lives all the time. Right. And it looks bad every time, but you know, I, maybe I'm a sucker or whatever, but I don't necessarily think that it's always bad intentions meant by it.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that a a scene that's sort of important, I think is when Malcolm goes and calls his wife. Right. And yeah. Kind of talking about, um, how Cassius is, you know, going to convert. And, um, and it's clear it becomes clear in that scene. That scene is important, I think, because like this is his living. Right. This is this is not like yeah, he doesn't have a job. Uh, right. This is more to to Malcolm than just, you know. His religion, whatever. This is like what is, you know, getting him from point A to point B, allowing him to support his family, allowing him to, you know, live um, and and exist. And so. um you know, I think I think it takes on a new meaning when uh, you know you, you see that, and, I, and honestly, that's kind of what the film is about for all of the characters: is like what they have to do, what should they be, what are they doing, and what should they be doing in order to, you know, live, exist as a you know prominent Black American um, at this particular time in history. Um, and so, I think, yeah, that that is definitely. Resonates in Malcolm's story as well. Um, And one of the reasons why I like Malcolm's story the most, again, because um, we get to see him as sort of this um, more thoughtful, reserved family man, you know, again, trying to figure out what his next move in the world is going to be. Um, This isn't necessarily the swaggering and, you know, larger than life, um, you know, activist and um, orator that we are. Uh, that we often see portrayed. Um, and so that's that's cool to see. I mean, I I don't think I'm, you know, looking at my Oscar ballad, quote unquote, that I have on my phone that I, where I, you know, have like the top five performances. I don't think I actually have any of the actors in my top fives right now, but uh, I do think Kings the Benadir is the closest for me. He's probably like, would be like my number six or seven for best actor. So um, yeah, I think th- I think the whole ensemble is is just really strong. Which is maybe, you know, again, maybe it's a compliment that I can't have someone. I've said this before about other movies, but maybe it's a compliment that I don't have somebody in one of the categories because it means that nobody else really stood out like, oh, this is the one performance. It was that everyone um, was doing excellent work, sort of giving and taking from each other in this cast, um, which I think is what you want in an ensemble piece like this. I'd agree with that. I I
1: definitely agree with that. And you look. I know that's not how this award actually plays out in real life, but best ensemble at the SAG Awards. It's what it's for. Sure. In the name. Sure. I think
0: there are some other films, you know, that have a a decent shot at that as well this year. But um... I'm saying nomination. I'm just saying nomination. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's an it's an interesting award, and yeah, I'd be very surprised if it doesn't get nominated. I, Look, it, I doesn't think really it's just a best picture thing. Like, it's just their
1: form. It's whatever they call their best picture, but whatever.
0: Right. I think this movie is going to be nominated for a lot of things. To be honest, with you. I think it'll get a best picture nomination. Um, I, mean, I how
1: many nominations do you think it's going to get? I don't think it's going to get that
0: many. Yeah, I mean, Three, it's not like, te- it's not like cool. technically, you know, stunning or anything. I think uh, I think that Kingsley Benadire and Leslie Odom Jr. will be nominated. Um, you and so it, I think, yeah, I it, both in lead I, or what? I, I no no, this, so there, Kingsley Benadire is the only one they're pushing for lead. They're pushing the other three for support. I actually think Leslie Odom jr. Has the best chance of anyone to be, to get the nomination and maybe even win, um, because I think, uh, again, his is the most, and I, and I don't mean it in a bad way again, but his is the most, his is the performance that I think is catered the most towards Oscar voters, um, of, of the four actors. Um, and is the more traditional Oscar baby performance, I guess, uh, for lack of a better phrase. But um, I just
1: feel like I've seen all the hype for Kingsley Bittadier, so I, I'm not saying that you're wrong. I just I'm a little surprised by that.
0: Sure, no, from from critics, yeah, but uh, they're not that's really want to determine these. You know, again, if he he may get the love in like the critic circles and stuff like that, even though most of them have voted. I think,
1: but, um, but that's true. I didn't, I I
0: didn't yeah, Oscar season. I could definitely see Leslie Odom Jr. when you add in the musical component as well. Right, we've seen in, in the recent years how highly um the academy and stuff values not even when you're not even singing right like, yeah. in the case of rami malik um so when you actually are singing well that's the know, problem
1: he's actually singing so it's not as impressive if he were just lip-syncing yeah. it would be better
0: that that's true maybe yeah, yeah that part, didn't I didn't I could totally see the music. um and he was singing. he was he was not nominated that is true and he was singing so yeah there you go he's a loser um, so if he hadn't been singing he'd been he'd been a winner before we wrap up, Scott, uh, do you want to say anything more about Regina King's direction? Obviously, you know, she's a this is her directorial debut. She's been on a real run recently, winning an Oscar a couple years ago for Beale Street and then winning an Emmy last year for Watchmen. Um, do you think she has a future behind the camera as well as in, in front of it? Look, I'm
1: sure her next feature like is going to is going to have her writing or like acting and directing. Like, I, I feel like that's just like so predictable. Uh, at this point, uh, and just based on more and more of what I see, feel like Hollywood like going with the quote unquote safe bets and whatnot. Like they're going to want Regina because this is going to do well. They want Regina King direct, but they also want her to star because, you know, she's won an Oscar for for acting. So that's going to be the next thing. And that's exciting to me. Look, I'm, I'm saying that sort of like dismissively, but that's exciting because I think that she is a really good actress. You know, she was really great in Beale Street. It was a boring Oscar race because she literally won every single award that season. Uh, so for that supporting actress category that year, it was super boring as it was last year too, I guess, I guess Laura Dern did the same thing last year, but um, look, it, it she's great. I mean, she really is. She was amazing in Watchmen. She was great in Beale Street. She's been great in other things that I've watched her in too. and I'm excited to see what she can come up with. Leftover
0: season two.
1: Yeah, no, I'm getting into it, man. I'm like really close. Cause like right now there's like nothing super immediate on the horizon for my TV show list. And so Leftover has been at the top of that, like backlog list forever. So it might actually happen soon. Um, it's happening, especially after I watch Carrie Coon again in the nest. I mean, she's good in like, everything, like, yes. in, but um, I need to actually Coon yeah. Hive, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, it, I'm close to it. I'm close to it. So I'm saying, but yeah, look, I, I'm excited about it. Does she have a future in directing? Absolutely. Like, I think, look, for me, I guess to to be more, to me, to say something more interesting than just, I think she has a future in directing. I think her next, next feature is going to be really important. Like I'm assuming that it's not going to be a play. adaptation. It might be, but I'm assuming it's not going to be a play adaptation. Uh, in in her next one so like actually again like having a full like having the full film medium at her disposal to direct something i think it's going to be really telling about whether she has a like a future in making is she going to direct 10 more films or is she just going to direct a couple more films um and stick with acting like i think that's the interesting question answer that question and i think that you know i don't know if aaron sorkin will ever go into directing something that's not you know historical fiction of some sort right or like based on true events um but if you ever like look like i feel like i've made my decision on whether i think aaron sorkin can, can, should continue to direct or just stick to writing and i think with my next feature right i'll be able to do that with Gina, regina george or i just said regina george jesus guys <laughs> regina king uh regina king will be doing this did i say regina george earlier in this too uh regina king. no i don't think <laughs> and, I, and with her after her next feature right you know assuming it's something that's a little bit different than this i feel like i'll be able to make a better judgment on that but she's good yeah like, i thought she did really well on this
0: Yeah, I agree. This isn't some sort of crazy directing director of debut, like, like, uh, you know, to mention this movie again, but Emerald Fennell and and, uh, Promising Young Woman, like where you're just like, whoa, uh, when you, you know, you see this movie, this isn't some crazy ambitious like thing for a director to do. But I think she makes some really smart choices um, here. And, you know, I I talk about her the ways that she I talked about the ways that she sort of opens things up, gets them outside of the hotel room whenever she can but then also the ending right then this will transition us to favorite scene because this is obviously my favorite scene but um you know the way that she chooses to end this film is incredibly powerful with um you know sam cook on the tonight show singing a change is going to come leslie odom jr singing a change is going to come which is probably one of the best songs ever written if we're being quite honest um and having this sort of montage going on at the same time of jim brown at a press conference um, you know, announcing his next move in his career uh, of, um, you know, Malcolm X and Cassius Clay, you know, also sort of in front of the press, you know, revealing that Cassius Clay is going to be converting to Islam. Um, and it, you know, the, it really makes you you think about a lot. Right. Because, you know, ch- change is clearly coming. Right. Like you could see that in the montage. Um but also, there's a real poignancy, poignancy to it because of that postscript. You know that you mentioned, Scott. Where we find out, you know, in the next year, are both Malcolm X and Sam Cooke were killed. Um, and so, the song "Right A Change" is going to come. You listen to it, and it's it's you know, it's a hopeful song, right? It's you know, looking forward. It's saying, hey, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna make things better. Um, and you know, <laughs> I think we've learned over the last few years that things aren't at, aren't as better as we would have hoped they would be you know 50 years 60 years after the events of this film but you know they did get better to some extent uh after the release of this song uh, but malcolm x and you know sam cook they weren't around really to see the after effects of uh you know what their their actions may have sparked so um i think you know as much as it is like it's a hopeful note it's you know heart swelling like Goosebumps, you know, music moment um, with Leslie Odom Jr. singing this incredible song. Uh, it's also it also has the right amount of sadness and poignancy to it, and so I think it's it was a brilliant choice for um, Regina King to uh, end the film on that. And uh, you know, I wrote this on Letterbox, but like after after you like watch that, I think this is a movie that like you should sit with before you go make your Letterbox review, right? Because after you watch that ending scene of the movie, at least for me, uh, it's like Five stars, right? Like this is the best movie ever after after, you know, when you're coming off of the high of that last scene. Um, but I do think, again, the movie has a few roles and, and stuff like that along the way. But it's it's a strong film. Um, Scott, I've kind of just said my talked about my favorite scene there. Do you want to jump in with yours now?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I, again, I, I say this probably too, like more often than I should, since I was one of the. I think I was the one who actually came up with this idea of like doing saying our favorite scenes in like every movie or whatever. But uh, I, this is the type of film that sort of it just sort of blends the whole thing sort of blends together at, at some point, and that's not like a bad thing. It's just like it's strung together so nicely, and maybe that's expected since it's based on a play. Right, things are very fluid; they go from scene to scene, moment to moment, um, and so I think of them sort of in larger chunks or longer chunks, maybe is a better way to put it. Then normal and so there's this specific conversation between sort sort of after we talked a lot about this like the overarching conversation quite a bit but sort of after the the heat of the argument is done between malcolm x and sam cook you know sam cook and jim brown are talking on the side um and i think malcolm x and and cassius clay have like gone outside or something like that and he's saying it You know, basically everything that Malcolm had accused of him and like shamed him for it. Right. Like he was mad about it. That's like that's why he got so upset. I, you know, I'm so mad that that this is the per- like Bob Dylan is the person who made this song when I when I should be the one making the song. Um, and I really love that scene. I think that's like the highlight of, you know, perfect blend of everything that I love about this movie performance script, you know, character, all of it's all of it's there or the hearts there, the passions there, the rage is there. Um, and the truth and like for the lack of it or like the truth is there, right? Like, e- like even if even if his goal in life isn't to live this life that Malcolm X is describing for him, why wouldn't you be freaking upset? Like, why wouldn't you be so freaking mad that someone else made this song that isn't even about you, but speaks to you so well? And you have like and, and you should have that platform. Like, absolutely it should piss you off. Um, and so I, I love that scene. That's a really great scene. But again, I think that it's hard to go wrong with any particular scene once the movie really picks up and gets going in the second act, so to speak.
0: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting conversation to have about Bob Dylan in general, because, you know, they could, there were several songs they honestly could have picked to uh, uh, from Bob Dylan that I think would have gotten the point across as well, because he, you know, has written some of the most, like, progressive political, uh, you know, beautifully written political songs of all time. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I agree. I, I really liked all of the moments involving, you know, sort of the conversation around blowing in the wind.
1: Um but it's also interesting, not 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 to die drag us off in a different direction, but could have could Sam Cook have written that song and and it performed and you know it, it done as well as Bob Dylan. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Nice. I think the conversation after that about the Rolling Stones probably tells you that he couldn't.
0: But right. And and Bob Dylan, you know, he would later write a hurricane, which was a song about Reuben Carter, a black boxer who was wrongfully imprisoned for murder. And it was sort of a protest song as well. And so, you know, you yeah. get into again some of these conversations about um was um, was Bob Dylan because he was the one who did the song was he able to reach more people and you know have them learn about the story of Reuben Carter then um, you know did Sam Cook would have been for example if he had written a song about you know another yep. black man who was maybe a, who knows um, it still took Reuben Carter another twenty years to get out of prison but um, go watch that movie too um, all right Scott let's put a score on uh, Let's put a score on uh one night in Miami. What do you give it out of 10? I'm
1: giving it a 9.0. I think this film would be up in, up near the 10. Uh, if not for that first half hour, there's nothing wrong with that first half hour, but in a film that I agree with you, it does feel a little long. I think that you trim it down there. Uh, you get to the point quicker, so to speak. Uh, I think it would have been, you know, close to a perfect film.
0: 8.1 for me. Yeah. It's, it's really strong. Um, you know, a few, a few lulls in there. Um, but, you know, for for every um, lull, I think there are two or three moments that are really great. And again, scene of the year at the end. So uh, everyone Look, it, should it, definitely check.
1: It can't be, it can't be at, a, at 100 every second of the film. There have to be some lulls, but yeah. I, I take the point.
0: Um, no, no, no. I mean, you're, you're right. You're right, of course. But I just mean it just feels a little bit long at times.
1: Um, no, I hear but, you.
0: But, yeah, um, everyone should definitely check it out. It's on Amazon Prime now, so uh, yep. highly accessible to you. I think I think a lot of people are probably watching this um, because it's getting a lot of um, promo and stuff when you're on Amazon and just people talking about it on social media and stuff. Yeah, like,
1: on the Amazon homepage. I've never seen this before. On the Amazon homepage, in the top right corner, there's a banner for Watch One
0: Night in Miami.
1: I've never yeah. seen that before. My, bro-
0: My brother, uh, who doesn't really watch movies, although I'm starting to get him to watch some, but he uh, – like he Rob. was. I was talking to him on the phone the other day and he was on Amazon and he was like, "Oh, hey, what's this one night in Miami? This looks good. And I was like, yeah, you should watch this. It's You would actually like this. Would
1: he? Um, that doesn't seem like a Rob movie, but I don't know
0: Rob's taste very well. I don't know. I think he'd like the... You know, he, he'd, be, he'd be interested by the history aspect of it. But fair I point. That's um, fair. All right, Scott, that'll do it for our conversation about One Night in Miami. When we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about a couple of big new movies that are going to be coming out uh, from uh you know some some pretty well-known name oscar nominated directors um in the next couple of years uh a couple of movies with you know big big names attached uh, and you know a lot of buzz around them so when we come back we'll be talking about that uh, so stick with it. to this episode of some like it scott scott before we finish up today a couple of big uh, movie announcements to get to Mo- i say movie announcements but really the one you're going to talk about is just a casting announcement it's a movie that we've known about and some big names were already attached to yeah uh, and now they just decided to throw all of the other big names in hollywood into this movie too just for for good measure this is the new film from david o russell director of uh, silver linings playbook the fighter uh, American hustle to name a few. Uh, and Scott, do you want to tell us who is now added to the list to the already illustrious list of people who are in this film?
1: Yeah, I swear to God, I swear to God, like all these people were already in the movie, but apparently not. I had to go back and like actually research uh, to, to figure out which people were already in the movie. Cause the announcement that I saw was just like the full cast list that they had built out. But so previously when, when we talked about it on the podcast, I know that we have, but previously it was Christian Bale and Margot Robbie with what, With at one point Michael B. Jordan, but then who was replaced by John David Washington. So it's like Christian Bale, Margaret Robbie, John David Washington, incredible trio to have in a movie. You know, even, I mean, I'm one of the biggest Michael B. Jordan stands probably, but even, even though he dropped out, John David Washington coming in, like still great, great trio. And then just for kicks, I guess, they decide, they decide to add Robert De Niro, Chris Rock, Michael Shannon, Mike Myers, Timothy Oliphant, and Andy Taylor Joy. All joining this cast, was like what? <laughs> like, what this is such a huge cast. <laughs> it's like, and then that, that doesn't even talk about Andrea Riseborough, who I think was already in this as well, or or maybe was joining at this point. I'm not sure. Matthias Schoenarts and Alessandra Nivola also joined. So it's like 14 or 15 names, of which like 12 of them are like very good actors and
0: actresses. Do do we know what this movie is about yet? Yeah. Um,
1: I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't think that there's any plot. I mean, it doesn't have a title. I don't think there's any plot details that have been released, honestly. So it's just a mysterious project, but probably some like comedy drama mix, right? Like that's what he does. At least
0: recently. Yeah. No, and I mean, obviously, you know, Christian Bale and um, Robert De Niro are people that he's worked with on multiple occasions. So um, yeah.
1: I'm convinced Jennifer yeah, Lawrence it, will pop up in like a un, like secret role, like a la Matt Damon Interstellar or
0: something like that. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah, Scott, you know, uh, I mean obviously, you know, some incredible names attached to this including like Anya Taylor-Joy and Margot Barbie. Robbie and John David Washington who are like there some of my absolute favorite favorites right now in Hollywood. Yeah. Um but David O. Russell is not really one of my favorite directors uh despite him making one film that I really really do love that being Silver Linings Playbook. I think the rest of his filmography is a real mixed bag. So, um I'm not sure you know I, I i hope that he can balance all of these plates um yeah. really well but you know i liked i think silver linings playbook you know i think he did like the tight like interior like few character piece really well like with you know you had bradley cooper you had jennifer lawrence you had um you had the mom and dad you had robert de niro and jackie weaver and like you know, that was that was the movie basically. You know, you had a few yeah. other extraneous characters in there, John Ortiz right. and Chris Tucker and people like that. But um for the most part, um, you know, I think I think it was about that sort of ro- it was the romance and then the family drama and comedy and stuff. And I thought he did that really well. Movies like American Hustle, where he's tried to, you know, do the whole big glitzy ensemble and stuff like that, I think have fallen a little bit more flat. But uh, we will see, only five I mean, cast members. That was just, you know, five people. And this is 10 yeah yeah um so we'll see i i have my questions about whether he is going to be balanced going to be able to balance all these you know let me let me just put it this way i would feel a lot better about some other director you know obviously taking on this ensemble like if this was quentin tarantino's next film i'd be like (laughs) oh heck yeah uh you know somebody like tarantino or somebody like that who's shown that they can balance an ensemble uh, really well I think would be a good choice for this but you know that's yeah, not who we're getting. I, I we're see David that. O. Russell so I will say you know I, I am more excited for this than I have been for you know his last couple of films with Joy and American Hustle So
1: yeah and it's been a long time I and mean, look I think Joy, Joy was his last movie right so it's been that was like 2016 right yeah. 20, well yeah it might have I think it's wide release was probably 2016 but I think it was technically a 2015 movie so it's been like you know five six years yeah. since you know, since his last movie came out and I don't know what he's been doing, but I guess it's maybe writing and rewriting this script a thousand times. I don't know, but it's interesting. The Last time he, I mean, like he had like three movies back to back to back. I mean, silver linings playbook and American hustle were like a year apart. And then joy was only yeah. like a couple of years after that. So, you know, maybe time off has allowed him to, you know, refine that element of it. And maybe he'll come back with something stronger. I don't know what the break was between, you know, before silver linings playbook. That's by far, I mean, if you listen to our best of the decade episode, that, that movie was on my list, so I'm hoping, obviously, for something closer to that than, you know, something a little bit more average. I would say like American Hustle or or Joy, but we'll see.
0: Yeah. Now, shifting gears, Scott, a uh, director whom I'm much more of a fan of, uh, Noah Baumbach uh, is also going to be uh, coming out with a new film. Um, this will be his follow up. Not that they're related, but it will be his first film since Marriage Story, obviously, which sort of has been his biggest splash in his career so far getting a lot of Oscar attention, Um, you know, and the Netflix name and all that on that movie. Um, And he's taking on a big ambitious project, once again, uh, pairing with Netflix, uh, but he's going to be adapting a novel called white noise by Don DeLillo, um, which from what I understand uh, from just reading sort of the discourse about this movie announcement uh, is one of those sort of big epic, like. Um, really thought-provoking novels that is kind of considered unfilmable, uh, like you know some of Jonathan Franzen's books or and stuff like that. Um, and so a lot of people are really skeptical about um, anyone taking on this project. I think. Um, but for me, Scott, not having that background on the book, um, you know, if Noah Baumbach wants to make a movie, I'm in, right? And if he wants to make a movie with you know his two sort of muses, I guess. One of them you know quite literally being the mother of his son harold um that is greta gerwig um thank you for I that. Just, very I, interesting i know stuff. i know that no i know that because don't they just seem like the people who would have a child named harold like isn't that the most yeah and, and call thing him ever harold ever? not know. call him harry yeah. like actually call they him do. Harold they like do like they, they call him harold yeah they literally do um yeah and so greta gerwig is going to be returning in front of the screen right we haven't seen her in a movie I don't know 20th century women might've been the last one where she was actually an actress in, but um, you know, obviously has been directing with lady bird and uh, little Women here recently. Um, but she's going to be returning in front of the camera for this one, uh, as well as Adam driver, who, uh, you know, unsurprisingly he's been in bomb backs, you know, last several movies uh, or, you know, he's been, he's worked with bomb back on multiple occasions. Um, and yeah. So the, the description of this film is, um, it's a family drama it's about siblings i think there's some like university satire and stuff that goes on um here but you know again it's it's a big epic beast from what i understand and one of those where like the plot is kind of hard to sum up maybe necessarily in um you know a couple sentences so um, this definitely seems like it's going to be maybe the most ambitious film that bomb has made so far um But, you know, again, I have no reason whatsoever to doubt um, Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. I think all three of these people are operating at, you know, three of the best working people in Hollywood right now. They're just, you know, they're operating at truly, truly elite levels um, with what they're doing right now. Um, And so, you know, I'm, I'm on board. They could adapt Fifty Shades of Grey and I'd be down.
1: Yeah, I'm just waiting for uh, for them to announce that they're actually in a thruple together. Because I mean, Adam Driver is in literally everything that Noah Baumbach does. It seems like uh, I think no, I,
0: I, I want the movie right. Like I, I, I'm convinced that while we're young is just a movie about like. No Noah, Noah Baumbach. I'm convinced that that Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts in that movie are Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig in real life, and like uh, the Adam Driver Amanda Seyfried couple is either like his relationship with adam driver or you know some other bohemian you know actor or whatever but uh i his films are always uh you know come from a very personal place like so i don't
1: know um, what you're talking about marriage story definitely definitely no personal experience written in the oh way. yeah no. <laughs> in the text there um no that's really exciting like, i mean i love adam driver i think that you know not everything he does is a slam dunk but it's not his fault uh he can't help stupid choices that corporations make
0: and I should add too that this is his first this will be Bomback's first adaptation, right? He's never mm. all of his other works, I believe, have been original films. So um,
1: Well he's writing it, but yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, he's still I mean, he's still, he adapt. still adapting it. Yeah. Um so I'll look, I'm sure he'll take his creative liberties with it. And it sounds like it's a it's a book that needs you need creative liberties to be able to translate it from its text to yeah. you know to the to the screen from you know what we've talked about sort of off off mic, but Again, I'm with you. I have no reason to doubt that. Just a critical point. I mean, not in front of the camera, but she was a voice in Isle of Dogs. Uh, I that's remember right, yeah. But again, that's not in front of the camera. So last time she was in front of the camera was probably, you know, 20th century women, like you were saying. I can't think of anything else that would have been. But overall, thrilled about this for the people who are like naysaying it and say, I can't believe they're touching this book. Okay. I still can't wait for the movie. It's. You know, Noah Baumbach has, you know, just just from Marriage Story alone, you know, become a director that I really pay attention to. And I plan on this year sort of catching up a little bit on some of his filmography at the very least. And so looking forward to that, looking forward to this, because I think pretty much everything Adam Driver does. I mean, he's really, really good. And I can't think of something that he's not good in that I've seen. I haven't seen everything that he's done, but, you know, even in the worst Star Wars movie of the new trilogy by far, he still puts in a good performance, I think, as Kylo Ren
0: yeah and the last time these three people teamed up one of my favorite movies francis ha so um yeah that that is a big plus for me and you know to provide sort of an alternate perspective um i listen to the big picture which is the ringers film podcast pretty often with sean Finnessy and amanda dobbins and sean Finnessy was actually saying that this is the book he has been most wanting to be filmed for many years uh so he's providing sort of the alternate perspective of someone who actually does think this film or this book can obviously be made, be made into a good film. Uh, Scott, just an interesting side note for us. Uh, Amanda Dobbins also gave the answer that I would have given. Do you know what that answer would be to that question of what is the book that needs to be made into a uh, film? The Secret History, baby.
1: Oh, well, yeah. On its parts um, yeah, I, actually I, I don't i don't think that movie should be uh,
0: based on what they do with the goldfinch i don't think that movie should be made well it should be a limited series i think it shouldn't be a movie sure. but okay um,
1: i can get on board with that for sure even I mean, uh, look, World League,
0: even sarah paulson said that the goldfinch <laughs> should have been a mini, uh, limited series too and i, I think
1: anyone who watched that movie should should know that it should have been a mini, yeah. mini series but look a like movie, but not yeah, light spoilers been. for the secret history if you want to fast forward 15 seconds if you're thinking about reading it but like look I think that there's very sensitive topics that get explored uh, in secret really? history that would make it interesting to portray on screen. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, I just thought that was an interesting point because that is what that is like again, when, as soon as I heard the question asked, the first thing that popped in my head was secret the secret history. And then Amanda also answered Secret History. So that was cool. But Are they uh, talking about films or limited series? Sorry confused they, they I, I don't know that i think it was kind of fluid i mean I, I think they were probably talking about films but i mean i think just adaptation in general yeah, yeah. look i don't know if uh, how
1: how ready donatart is to play ball after a disaster that the goldfinch was
0: but i don't think she really cared i don't know that she had that much to do with the goldfinch to be honest. again again she's very reclusive and like I, I, just, she she has
1: to sell right, I just mean, like, they, she has to sell
0: the rights to. For sure, sure, sure. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't, she, you know, she didn't make any public com- comments about the Goldfinch. Who knows if she even knows that the movie was was uh, not very well regarded? Um, yeah, at the very least, she probably it knows, a check, but. but she's like, hmm, where did this
1: couple million dollars come from in my bank account all yeah, of a sudden? I thought
0: that this would make more. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you mean to say that Ansel Elgore is not a name that gets butts and seats? Um, I'm shocked uh there's some some
1: very dirty joke there about butts and it's all court probably but
0: oh god yeah well i forgot he he's been canceled now um i don't miss him if we're being quite honest
1: um you didn't you didn't even know
0: he was gone he'd forgotten it's true yeah uh don't let the door hit you on the way out ansel um all right scott that should do it for this episode of some like it scott where can our listeners find you on twitter
1: at shelton two zero one three. At this point, I think I feel like uh, we should just change this to "Where can people find you on Letterbox?" Because I mean, I don't even tweet yeah. really. Let's be honest. Uh,
0: never tweet, in the words of Matt Singer. Uh, his number one piece of advice: never tweet. Um, great advice. I have not followed that advice. I do tweet, uh, and you can follow my tweets at Scarby Dent. You can also follow my Letterbox at Scarby Dent. Um, and we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, and you'd like to support us, please check us out on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/media. plug pods. Even if you can't support us over on Patreon, uh, you know, do rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do under preferred podcast app. Uh, and of course, we hope you will be back for next time for part one of the big one. Aaron Jay and Paulo Yama will be joining us as we count down our top ten films of 2020. Uh, But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening.